1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry.
2: And I'm Anna. And this episode, we're going to be covering a film, The Old Man and the Gun, and in a genuine BFI podcast style, we're making up a genre and also a character trope.
1: Double whammy. Can,
2: double whammy, indeed. The Old Man and the Gun, which premiered at this year's BFLN Film Festival and is out in UK cinemas now, is the latest film from the director David Lowry, who I interviewed when he came up with the festival about the film, and who also has had the unusual privilege of directing screen legend Robert Rufford in his last ever, supposedly, last ever film role as the gentleman bank robber Forrest Tucker.
0: You said he was armed. He had a gun. You saw him. Well, he was also sort of a gentleman.
1: He was very polite. He seemed like a nice enough fellow. Look at that. Is he smile?
2: This new, charming, and somehow vintage feeling taken on the heist movie and the All-American Outlaw has inspired us to discuss, or maybe even debate, shock horror, whether there could be such a cinematic genre as the cuddly Manhunt film, which is a name invented by Henry Barnes. I definitely could.
1: <laughs> you remember the day that I went for cigarettes and didn't come back? You mustn't notice. I don't smoke, don't sit. I suppose you'd still be attracted to any man of spirit, though. There's something engaging about it, this goddess business. Just one clear
0: shot, that's all I Come want. Come on.
1: Uh-uh. We got Up, get away from me. Why? I want to fight him
0: They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you?
1: Before
2: we do, Hen, what have you discovered this time around?
1: It's far from a discovery, but Louis Theroux has brought out three more episodes of his documentary series. This series is called Altered States, and he's back in America. I was in America, spending time among people looking to take control. And this time he's talking to people who are... One episode focuses on people who are near to the end of their life and it's about assisted death. Should death ever be a choice? And whether people should be allowed to make that decision about their own lives or not. Another episode is to do with essentially thruples, so three people in a sexual relationship. Is one partner always enough? In Portland, obviously. And then the other one, adoptive kids. What is the true cost of adoption? It's pretty obvious pick to say Louis Faroux for a documentarium, but I really feel that he's evolved and matured over the years and he's really learned how not to be a character in his own documentaries but at the same time be someone that can be a recognizable face that we trust to ask the right question at the right time i think his earlier stuff probably pre-savile episode he was very much trying to be a comedy figure or you know kind of gangly guy who would be in the middle of the story and never quite remove himself from it and now you get this real sense that he's seen a lot of the world and knows exactly the right question to ask because of that so, he, you know, again, he's far from somebody new on the scene. He's far from shocking us with what he's doing. But there's a real maturity to these episodes particularly, and particularly the one about assisted dying, because the subject demands it, that really um, struck home and was quite moving, actually. So the police, when they get there, will find a death kit. I'm just wondering, is there likely to be an investigation based on, on that?
0: The bottom line is that there's no law against killing yourself.
2: Do you think that he's matured or maybe calmed down, and, or has he calm down his signature style in a way.
1: I think like all of us, as we get older, we mature and calm down, Anna. I'm slowing down as I talk so I can feel myself getting older as we record. I
2: mean, we've established (laughs) that you're an old man and not hashtag blessed.
1: Thank you very much. (laughs) What have you discovered this time around you, young thing?
2: (laughs) Actually, ironically, and we did not pre-prepare this, I discovered the younger version of Louis Theroux. Oh, right, I see.
1: Yeah, just to rub it in. Thanks very much.
2: So another gangly guy with glasses who sort of plays dumb in order to get in difficult situations. This is David Farrier's Stark Tourism is my discovery of the week. And it's a documentary series that's available to watch on Netflix. And effectively, the premise of it is, is quite simple and very much in line with Netflix's contribution to the world of true crime, Mm. which is David Farrier, who is most notable for co-directing the really excellent documentary, Tickled. Which is all about competitive tickling and I will not say more because that doc has massive massive twists and turns. Amazing twists. Really, really good. And this sees David kind of travel all around the world and investigate some of the darker sides of tourism.
1: My name is David Ferrier and I've always been drawn to the weirder side of life. So
2: I've decided to investigate dark tourism a global phenomenon where people choose
1: to vacation in places associated with death and destruction.
2: Going on serial killer tours going to participate in voodoo rituals going to places where there's been murders where there's been nuclear disasters
1: what is it about going into war zones because i don't want to see it in a documentary you want to see it firsthand.
0: oh my god the level of radiation
2: that's higher than around chernobyl i'm into death it's
1: I... jeffrey Dahmer.
2: women yes. like bad boys
1: serial killers are by like definition of bad boys yes, yes. they are <laughs> Pablo Escobar, too. Popeye, you kills people in this compound, right? See. Sí.
2: And he not only participates in all of that, in as much as early Thoreau did as well, where he put themselves in that situation and kind of played himself down a little bit in order to be very unobstructive or inoffensive to the people he was interviewing. It is really interesting to go into some of the darker elements of humanity, especially in how people are making money off of what are considered human tragedies. And now on to the main point of this episode. Is the Cuddly Manhand film a genre or is the Lovable Rogue
1: a character trope? (laughs) (laughs) And we can't agree with both. We cannot. Because I'm coming around to both being true.
0: So, uh, what did you say you do?
1: Well, that's a secret.
0: And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank. And of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window. And you just walk in, real calm. So you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, okay?
1: (sighs) You're not serious. Here's my argument for cuddly manhunt film as a genre. Go on, sell it to me as a genre. The old man and the gun is a brilliant film that is totally reliant on you loving the central character who is at heart a diehard criminal who is never going to change and who puts himself and other people in danger simply because he wants to seek a thrill in his life and keep himself feeling more vital and alive and the twist on that is that he's an elderly man doing it so shock surprise he shouldn't be doing that as an elderly person. The policed person who's chasing after him is played by casey affleck and he's a detective who's working himself to the bone to find this guy and as he works harder and harder he realizes that he's actually essentially falling in love with him a little bit and starting to build this romantic bromance with this character simply because they're both extremely good at their job and therefore they can have respect for each other hence the cuddly manhunt side of it i would compare it to films like the steven spielberg film catch me if you can where leo dicaprio is playing frank abigail Goes around the world, pretends to be pilots, doctors.
0: FBI, come out of the bathroom.
1: Step out of the bathroom. Hands on your head. You know that's the new IBM Selectric. Put yeah. your hands, hands on your head.
0: Print type in five seconds. Shut up. out the ball. Put your hands on your head. Put your hands. You know he's got
1: over two hundred checks here. A hands on your head.
0: Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed down. to
1: himself. From Put it head. down. Drop it! Relax. You're late. All right? My name's Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out
2: the
0: window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: He's been chased by Tom Hanks. But again, there's this kind of feeling... Like Tom Hanks is a slightly more paternal authoritarian figure than Casey Affleck is because of the age difference. But there is a kind of grudging respect Well, You could argue that character. Robert
2: Redford in this film is the begrudging father figure to Casey Affleck's yeah, character. Yeah,
1: totally true. But again, that's why they, they're kind of cuddly, because there's no sense of any real danger. Animosity. Animosity, but even danger or jeopardy in the films either. And it doesn't have to be. And I'm saying that, like, it sounds like it's a pejorative, but it's not. It's just there's this feeling that um, it's all slightly unreal because these criminals are doing these dangerous, violent acts and there's no real-world punishment.
0: He broke out of San Quentin in a boat. Sixteen successful escapes. You know, somebody should have told him to quit while he was in. Well, you find something you love. So how do the same three guys get away with all that?
2: Well, they haven't gotten away with it.
0: They just haven't been caught yet. Step on it. You think you can catch him? I won't lie. I'd love to start the cuffs on myself, so I hope I get
1: the chance. Not everything has to be heat, but at the same time, it feels slightly soft and dreamlike. Is heat
2: a cuddly man film?
1: Absolutely not.
2: (laughs) Why is heat not a cuddly manhunt film? Heat is a steely
1: manhunt film. film. So there's a romance between De Niro and Pacino in heat, and it is definitely hot. So you
2: think that's not a cuddly manhunt film because that's more romantic than bromantic?
1: It's sexy. Cuddly manhunt films are loving. So, it. The relationship between Robert Redford and Casey Affleck in The Old Man and the Gun is essentially sexless and warm and familial. The relationship so we... between Pacino and De Niro in Heat is very sexy and all about cold hard steel.
0: You see me doing thrilled secret liquor store holdups with a Born to Lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores.
1: I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying
0: to stop guys like me.
2: All of the films that we're talking about are takes on a particular type of genre. So The Old Man and a Gun is effectively an all-American heist film. Yeah. It's about bank robberies, but what matters are not the robberies themselves, because there are quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. It's effectively, there's not one single heist that Forrest Tucker is building towards because he does a lot of small ones constantly. And uh, we see it throughout the films, but they're not the point. They're just a means to an end. At the end, is pretty much him being happy that's yeah. all he really wants it's not even about the money it's about the thrill of it whether it's you know something like heat it's all building up to one particular heist or Ocean's Eleven for instance but the point I was making is that they're all versions on a very particular genre be it the heist movie or horror movie or a western or whatnot so do you think this is the romantic version of that and because it's a very male oriented genre do you think that is the way of making male audiences connect more to characters when there is say for instance no Love interest.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, probably it's like elder male audiences, particularly, I imagine would go for this film because it, it screams all that thing of, you know, if you're creeping over the hill, there's it's, it's always great to feel that there's another adventure around the corner, right? That you've always got one last bullet in the chamber, so to speak. Five states.
2: 93 robberies. In two years. Living is a gamble, baby. Loving's
0: much the same. I sat down with him once and I said, surely there's an easier way to make a living. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living. If I ever wonder what I'm doing or where I'm going, I just think of myself as that little kid I was. Now, would he have been proud of me? So is he proud of you, that little boy? Oh, well, he's getting closer every day.
1: Robert Redford embodies that in everything, right? Like, not just in this film, but throughout his career. I feel like he's been in his late 60s plus for the last 50 years like there's always a a (laughs) twinkle in his eye and a crease in his face but he is the kind of bastion of this incredibly morally righteous but at the same time ethically wobbly person
2: completely lovable and And completely lovable you cannot dislike Robert 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 Rafferty it's just physically impossible no
1: I I don't and I don't think you can but all of that plays into this huge nostalgia about him and these films as well is that these criminals are essentially what used to be the gentleman robber in the wild west right like they would politely take your goods from you, politely put a gun to your face, politely scare the Jesus, out of you, but then they would go off having been polite and nobody would come to any real well, harm. This,
2: the Gentleman robber, kind of the all-American criminal, the all-American outlaw is a very particular character trope of American cinema. One, the Robert Redford and other people like Paul Newman as well have played effortlessly throughout their careers. But it's interesting that you mention that because that is exactly what David Lowry kind of pointed out as well and that is part of the design of the film. You fall in love with him even though you acknowledge the fact that he is a, a career criminal and that he is entirely selfish he has done a lot of wrong and a lot of harm to people around him, particularly this is embodied in the film through a character that appears that is one of his um, ex-wives mm. in the film. So you see some of the, the trauma and the hurt that he's left behind, but you never really hold it against him. And this is part of the debate that we're going back and forth about. It's like that, I think, it's more to do with the character itself and that being a character trope and essentially how deeply can identify that particular style of character and performance with particular actors. Like you could not imagine someone like um, Ben Mendelsohn for the first person that came to mind, who is an incredibly talented, mostly character actor, playing someone who is so charming and roguish Mm. and still effectively morally dubious or walking a really, really fine ethical line that someone like, say, Paul Newman or George Clooney in a way or Cary Grant even or Robert Redford more than anyone else play effortlessly. They never let you fall out of love with them when they're on screen.
1: Glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. (laughs) You scared of me, mister. Why don't you just come right out and say so? (laughs) sir, why should I be scared of you? Because I got a reputation for being a dangerous man. Now, they tell me that I paid my debt to society. Funny, I never got a check. You're not wearing your ring.
2: I sold it. I don't have a husband, or didn't you get the papers?
0: My last day inside. I told you I'd write. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Are these rogues always older men?
2: I don't think they are because I think and Rufford himself has played that role not that particular role but that trope throughout the entirety of his career you know starting with something like butch cassidy and the sundance kid and he's sort of shifted between kind of being the younger version of that character to being now the gentleman robber
0: kid the next time i say let's go someplace like bolivia let's go someplace like bolivia next time ready no we'll jump like hell we will no it'll be okay the water's deep enough we don't get squished to death he'll never follow how do you know Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to? I have to and I'm not going to. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead.
1: I really like those parallels because they match up to another film that David Gordon Green made called Manglehorn starring Al Pacino. And it's not a cuddly manhunt film. It doesn't even star a lovable rogue, but there's a definite um, feeling of nostalgia for the actors' own past roles. There's a lot of references in that film to Al Pacino's previous body of work. So treating the actors themselves as these kind of loverable venerable figures that we somehow still respect and love even though they're not always kind of squeaky clean and perfect in public and i find that weirdly beguiling and also a little distasteful at the same time because it comes with its own strictures it becomes this thing of it's almost always older white man who gets to play that kind of role and have that kind of history i think and that. you either do it in a soft-touch way with Redford or Pacino, or you do it in the kind of Expendables way where Stallone is still pumping iron and firing bullets into younger men. Well, I'm getting very homoerotic in this episode. <laughs> I kind of like it. It might be my new thing. But, but well, there's a way of them keeping themselves vital through still acting out the parts that they've already played over and over again before. I think that's
2: a separate thing. And it's yeah. interesting you bring up Stallone because Creed too, as well as in cinemas now, and Creed obviously... Well, the whole Rocky franchise is Stallone all over the place but also in Creed he reinvents himself or you know is reinvented by Ryan Kugler and by Michael B. Jordan and all that
0: <sighs> Look at me. I never got a chance to thank Apollo for helping me out after Mickey died but it's nothing compared to what you've done you taught me how to fight again and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna fight this thing but if I fight I want you to fight too I want you to go across this ring and knock that son of a bitch down can you do it? Say it. I'm going to knock that son of a bitch down. I know you are. You know why? Because you are Creed, and I love you, kid.
2: He presents though now as a much more lovable Rocky, as opposed to the kind of more ambitious or steadfast or really, really single-minded boxer that he was in his youth. So softer, he, softer, almost exactly. cuddly. Almost. You could cuddle Stallone. <laughs> you could never cuddle Pacino. He would punch no. you right in the face, no. which is yourself. why Pacino would never be a lovable rogue. True. Because he, he would, he would stab you
1: forming the genre as we speak. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that you think that this is sort of reserved in a way. I'm using air quotes here, reserved for older white men. But do you think there are exceptions to the rule? Can you think of any non-white old men who are lovable rogues or cuddly or women?
1: Well, we've been talking about Charlize Theron, right? Like, and I mean, it it struck me looking at her filmography today that. The number of roles where she's played, quote unquote, and I hate this phrase for female actors, but like unlikable characters. I'm
2: obsessed with that phrase.
1: It's, well, it's, it's you know, I. I get that it's a positive thing that women can play nuanced roles in the same way as men. Of course, of course they can. But I, 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 in, in the same way, I don't like strong female characters, I don't really like the use of unlikable because it's like it's a good character. It doesn't matter if they're likable or not. You shouldn't have to judge women by a different standard. Blah 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 blah. I think anyway. likability
2: is a really important yeah. thing though, especially when we're talking about um, actors. Yeah. Because so and especially if you differentiate between actors and, say, stars. So I mentioned Ben Mendelsohn before, and I refer to him as a character actor. That's because he's not, to use something extremely basic, he's not an above-the-name-of-the-movie type actor. Mm. He's not, say, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a star. I mean, you know, he is a great actor, but he's a star first and foremost, whether, you know, someone like Ben Mendelsohn is a character actor or, you know, Sam Rockwell or people like that. And there is something about the persona that they create for themselves that exists off screen that may not necessarily be them and the personas that they're allowed to play on screen because audiences so deeply connect what the characters they see on screen with the character they believe this person to be in real life. And I think it's really difficult for a lot or designed, um, you know, whatever the way that they want to design their career for some actors and particularly actresses more than anyone else to be allowed to play unlikable or challenging or not very warm characters on screen because instantly people will project that onto them as people.
1: Yeah, I would struggle to call Charlie Thron's characters lovable rogues, but there is something about them that is going against society that transgresses a lot of the time. Like I'm thinking about Tully and then what's that other one with Jason Reitman, Young Adult. Young Adult. Um, and I... then even in Mad Max Fury Road, I mean, it's a limited character, but there is an element there of she is, for want of a better term, again, another word I hate, a badass, and mm. you you really respect her for that. She's yeah. not morally upstanding all the time, but she is an interesting, confident character who understands her own world and her place in it. And I would say that that's what she shares with, a lot of her characters share with male archetypes of that type as well, that they know who they are more than they know society's rules. And they're willing to break society's rules because they are more powerful than, quote unquote, the system. I made a deal up ahead, safe passage. I don't know if it's still any good.
2: Get back in the hole, keep the hatch open. I need you here.
0: You may have to drive the rig. It's
2: all here! 3,000 gallons of gasoline, just like you asked. I'm gonna unhitch the pod.
0: You said a few vehicles in pursuit, maybe. We count three war parties! I got unlucky.
2: I think her two roles that I would relate back to this would actually be Mad Max Fury Road that Mm -hmm. you mentioned, but also Atomic Blonde. Yeah, and in part because they, those are both films that play around with genre conventions in general, and they also play around with um, audience expectations and character tropes as well. So we expect Mad Max Fury Road to be all about Mad Max. Spoiler alert: it's not about Mad Max. It's about Furiosa. (laughs) And um, not only does he completely steal the show, but you're right; those characters shine because they understand the systems and themselves and where they sit within the system really well so they can play around with it and also they can twist it to suit their needs because I think one of the things that is um, pervasive across all of these types of characters is not only that they're cuddly is that they are extremely selfish but still very charismatic
1: Mm. I feel like we're blending the genres it's great it's turning into a cuddly manhunt rogue film which I like and I'd watch it definitely feels like there's more dramatic interest in someone like Charlize Theron playing those parts right and this is this is going back to the on oh my gun and it sounds like I'm really down on it and I'm not I really enjoyed the film but I find it less interesting to see twinkly cuddly sparkly Robert Redford be charming and be naughty at the same time than I do um, Charlize Theron for example stomping through the desert and telling Mad Max who's boss just because culturally as well as filmically as well as all the issues that we have to deal with in society, that makes for greater drama with all those foundations in place. I do think that The Old Man and the Gun is a great story and a story based in real life, obviously. But again, it just felt a teeny bit soft and a teeny bit otherworldly and uninteresting because of that.
2: I found it really interesting, partly because I think more than films of that kind of genre in a way usually are. It's more concerned with the character arc than it is with the action. Mm-hmm. The heists themselves are quite boring to watch because he just walks into the banks, he shows the cashier the the gun or the outline of the gun and then sort of slips him the note politely say can you please, please give me all of your money and not say anything otherwise I will shoot you in the face. Which is probably the politest way you can perform a bank robbery. There's a lot of um, instances in the film where every Everybody mentions that, yes, he robbed the bank, but also he was very lovely about it. But effectively, that happens over and over and over again. But that is not the point of the film. The point of the film is to understand Forrest Tucker as a character and also as a cultural character. So how does that relate to what particularly American pop culture has always been in love with, which is, you know, someone who plays outside of the system, Mm -hmm. even while they're telling everyone that they should live within the system. And that's also part of Casey Affleck, John Hunt's character arc as well. We meet him when actually he is not that great at his job. He's deeply frustrated. He... Doesn't know what to do. He's overworked. He's not having a a great home life either. But by the end of it, he's sort of inspired by Forrest Tucker's approach to life, which is, yes, these are the rules that I'm supposed to play by, but it doesn't mean that I have to play by them all the time. So he is sort of liberated by this roguish approach to the square system that they're forced to live in. And that, for me at least, was the whole point of The Old Man and the Gun, which made it a lot more interesting than your average heist movie with, you know, that we get a couple of times a year. And Robert Redford is a huge part of that because of his screen presence. But I think a lot of it also has to do with Lowry's screenplay and his very nuanced and kind of not over-the-top stylish direction of the actors as well.
0: I ultimately realized Forrest Tucker saw himself as a famous outlaw. He wanted to be the movie star version of a bank robber. And I thought, you know what? Let's just make the version of the character that he would have wanted to see on the big screen because that's the version that Robert Redford will be able to absolutely kill. And in fact, Forrest Tucker sent his life story to Clint Eastwood. He wanted Clint Eastwood to play him in a movie. And he wanted his tale to be told on the big screen. And I'm sure he imagined that gleam in the eye and those fancy suits and the the thrill of it all being far more prevalent than whatever you know, dark heart he truly had within himself. So I hope he would have been happy with this portrayal of him. And I think printing the legend, so to speak, was the right thing to do in this case. Part of it came from the real John Hunt, who I met and interviewed. and was, you know, he's been there through this entire process. And he told me that in spite of being a detective on that side of the law, when he was after a really good criminal, there was a sense of mutual respect the idea that they were each making the other better at their respective jobs. And and then I also realized part of it came from the real John Hunt, who I met and interviewed. and was in the gray area in which he exists on a moral level. I really liked him. And the more I learned about him, the more I liked him. And so I just felt, what if I just had the detective be a representation of my own growing affection for this character. And as he does his work, as he does his detective work and his detecting, he begins to fall in love with the guy in the same way I did. And once I did that, I think that entire storyline clicked into place. Prior to that, I was always like, he's going to have to catch him at some point. He's going to have to slap the cuffs on him. It's an inevitability, and I'm going to be sad, but we have to do that. At a certain point, I was like, wait, maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe this is the one movie where the cop can make a decision to let the chase go on, to let the bad guy walk out the back door and to not arrest him on the spot. And it just felt refreshing to me. It was delightful. And it and that, that sense of respect was there, that admiration the characters had for one another, but also just the affection. I really liked the fact that they like each other. And that was a beautiful thing to me.
1: If you compare that to something like a film that we talked about a few episodes ago, American Animals, that feels like a modern crime film in a way that this feels like the very, I mean, the story is set in the 70s, right? It is set in Oga. the 70s. And that's yeah. why I mentioned
2: it kind of, it's very new and charming. Yeah. But it's, it feels like a vintage dress it almost. Does. It, it feels, feels like, warm. Warm, like you've seen it before, like a nice old sweater that yeah. you put back
1: on after <laughs> a while. Silly. Whereas the kind of American Animals equivalent is like a kind of garish, slightly itchy shell suit in that it, it feels like they're seeking adventure in the same way, those characters, right? They're seeking a thrill, but they are doing it, first of all, from a perspective that's completely bumbling in a way that Robert Redford's character isn't, but also in a way that feels very um, openly selfish and very self-involved and self-interested. And like, we're going to do this because this is adrenaline that we're seeking. And Whereas, because they're
2: seeking fame and meaning. Totally. They are ultimately seeking both of them, both the Forrest Tucker and the American Animals gang are seeking meaning for their lives, but in radically different ways. And part of it could be age because the guys in American Animals are pretty much, you know, 18, 19 year olds, whether it's Forrest Tucker is in his 70s mm. when we meet him.
1: I'm really struggling as we talk to think about a new genre name for this then, because I think we've we've settled upon something that is a mix of one and the other. Nostalgic crime heist. Old sweater movies. Old sweater (laughs) movies. (laughs) I I quite
2: like Cuddly Manhunt films, but I think this is a Twitter poll in the making.
1: Help us, Twitter. Help us work out what this genre is called. We're nearly there, but we need an extra push. That's it for this episode. The Old Man and the Gun is in UK cinemas now. Love us or hate us, you'll find us on your podcast provider of choice. Like, subscribe, the usual suspects. You can catch me on at Henry H Barnes on Twitter and Anna. I'm
2: on Anna B Demented.
1: Dashing, debonair and liable to nick the mic from your stand. That's our producer, Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. And can we recommend that you check out the latest episode of Films to be Buried With, in which host Brett Goldstein sits down with actor Will Porter to talk about life, watching movies, and dying, perhaps in that order. That episode was recorded at the BFI South Bank as part of Podstock, a podcast festival that Anna organised, and I'm going to say was brilliant, even though I wasn't invited. We'll be back for our final episode of the year next week, so shorter sure wait than normal. In the meantime, our last line this time around comes from Michael Mann's Heat. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you're not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. I'm off on.
2: I'm going to rock up right now. <laughs>